anyway, so we're looking at 1 to 13. That's going to be our, our study section today. And I've entitled the sermon, Filled with New Wine, which comes from the very last verse of our study text today. It comes from 13. And so we'll, we'll find out what that means as, as we move through the text and as we get to it. Let's read our main passage. I'll pray once more, and uh, then we'll begin to examine it together. We're looking at 1 or 2, 1 to 13. Word of God says this, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and appeared to them and rested on each of them, it says. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word this morning, God, uh, that the gospel would penetrate the in most parts of who we are, God, that through the proclamation of your word that we would find our identity, our security, our value, our hope, our salvation, all that we need as people, that we would find all of that in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. God, open our hearts and minds. Open our eyes to see your majesty, as that song says, to see your truth, God. Open our hearts to receive it. God, we pray these things. Now, and may you ultimately receive all the glory for the preaching of your word. It is you who truly comes and preaches to us, Jesus. That is a work that you continue to do from your heavenly throne of grace. God, speak to us now. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus, for your son God, in Jesus Christ and all that he's going to do here today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, folks, let's uh, get your pencils ready or pens ready or whatever it is get your bibles ready hopefully you've got a note sheet and you're ready to go you're, you're ready to rock and roll we're going to begin by looking at verses one and two and we're going to just begin our exposition of this text right there it says when the day of pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The day of Pentecost arrived 10 days after the ascension 
of Jesus, and, which was about 50 days after uh, the resurrection or Passover time, right in that area of time. Now, the entire church uh, was gathered up in this upper room when the day of Pentecost came, which was a national holiday, and when the Holy Spirit came and began to do this amazing work of initiating the church. So we have 120 people that are up in this room, and the Holy Spirit comes into this room. And, and Luke tells us that God used uh, what we see in Scripture here as a, as a mighty rushing wind to announce uh, that he was about to do something quite spectacular, as we'll read in the text. Now, this isn't the first time that this has happened in the Scriptures. Um, we see God using a mighty rushing wind uh, in several places to announce that he's about to do something awesome, to announce maybe his presence or that he's about to begin a divine work. Uh, basically, back way back back in 1 Kings uh, 19.11, we see where Elijah, you know, he was sort of at the height of this depression after, you know, calling down fire on the altars of Baal, and he had this unbelievable life-changing experience where God just showed up and, and just defeated the false gods of Jezebel and Ahab of the, of the nation of Israel at the time. It was this unbelievable thing. This guy's at the pinnacle of his ministry. He's at the very top, and so often the ministers are at the top, and right when they come down off Easter or off some amazing God-changing, life-changing thing, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's all these things. And so Elijah comes out of this. Jezebel chases him off. She hates what's happened with her false gods. She's chases him, chased him off into the wilderness, and he's out there, and he's really, really, really depressed. He's having a really, really hard time. He's sort of wallowing in his depression just after God does these amazing things. And, and this is pretty much how I felt last Monday after Easter. It just, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a phenomenon. So, but I've never had a woman chase me into the wilderness wanting to kill me because I've destroyed her false gods. That's different. But anyways, as we read in the text, it says this. And, and I want to read this passage to you. I want, to just, I want you to see how God shows up just before God does something amazing and how he utilizes nature. The text says this in 1 Kings 19.11. It says, And he said, this is the angel of the Lord speaking. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And it says this, And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And then he says, this is interesting, But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now, very interestingly, Right after God passed by, this strong wind sort of came through, and it literally says that it tore the mountains apart, that it created a mess, that it made things fall apart. It, it brought rocks down and stones down, and then this earthquake comes in too. Now, a little later on in that narrative, in that storyline, after God comes through and reveals that he's about to do something through nature, through the wind, he gives, uh, he gives basically... Um, Elijah some incredible instructions. And the instructions are to go out and anoint this guy as king over Assyria or over Syria. Go over and anoint this guy as king over Israel. And that king uh, was a king named uh, Jehu. Uh, it's J-E-H-U. And this guy was a pretty awesome king. Now, the thing that's incredible, God comes through the wind. He, he comes and wind shows that he's there. And this incredible act that happens afterwards is that basically Elijah goes and anoints this guy as king, Jehu. And Jehu's main task, according to God, was to wipe out the entire family, everyone who ever existed from Ahab and Jezebel. 
And what happened in the scriptures? If you read along in the storyline, if you read the narrative, Jehu did that very thing. Absolutely put the sword to that wicked and evil family. And, you know, it's, it's sad in some sense, but you, I don't think that there's ever been a more wicked king than Ahab. And then as his queen, Jezebel, over Israel, they were horrible. They were terrible leaders. But the, the point is, is that God is about to do something awesome with the purging and cleansing of Israel from this family. And before he does it, he comes through the wind. He prepares things through the wind. Now, we see it again. Here's another use of that idea that God uses the wind or the fact that he does that. In Job 38.1, God rebuked Job for questioning his sovereignty and authority. If you've ever read the book of Job, it's really an amazing book, but it's depressing too in some sense that you see some guy deal with the worst conceivable tragedies in life and and he's just kind of wallowing in it and he has friends that come along and they're trying to encourage him but they make him feel a lot worse and the guy never recants his faith but he gets close and there's some times where he's really teetering on the edge and then God sort of shows up and basically rebukes him in Job 38 1 which is towards the end of the book and and it says this then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind So he came in sort of like a cyclone tornado kind of thing, and he answered him through that, which is really weird. And when I was studying that, I started thinking of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, and bicycles flying around in houses and the witch's feet, and, you know, just kind of a weird thing. But he comes and speaks to him through a whirlwind. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's really interesting. Now, after God visits him and speaks to him through this whirlwind, what happens with Job? Well, he gets restored back. Basically, almost, I think, twice as much as what he lost to begin with. God comes, and he does a divine work, and he restores to him back a wife and children and donkeys more than he's ever had and homes, and he gets all these things back. And so we can see in Job that before God took action, before God did something spectacular, what did he do? He came and he spoke through a whirlwind. Now, when Ezekiel, another instance of this, when Ezekiel was in exile In Babylon, God came to him and gave him a vision of his magnificent glory. In Ezekiel 1.4, we read, and this is awesome, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. Now, this is the... Uh, announcement of God here through nature again, through the wind, that he's about to do something spectacular and incredible. And what he basically does, if you keep reading along in the story, is that he gives, he gives this great prophet, one of the best prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, he gives him his calling. He tells him, you're going to be my prophet. He equips him to do that ministry, gives him a word, gives him the Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish it and do it. So bottom line, God has used the wind to announce that he's about to do something spectacular in many, many passages. And there's more than this. I just can't include all of them because of time. Now, which is really cool. So they've got them all resting in this house. They're all kind of sitting, reclined, chilling. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They're doing what they've been told after the ascension of Christ. And boom, God's presence is made manifest through a powerful rushing wind. This room fills with a wind, and that would be amazing, right? The windows slap open, you know, and the wind pours forth, and that would just be an amazing thing to experience. And everyone was there, and they were experiencing it, and it was incredible. Now, take notice to how Luke points to the origin of the mighty rushing wind. 
This is very important. He points to the origin uh, from where it came from, and he says that it came from where? He says in the text, heaven. Now, he no doubt included this little statement or this word heaven so that there would be no mistaking where this power came from. Uh, there, there were skeptics in those days, just as there are uh, today. Uh, men do all that they can to attribute the workings of God to mere nature or to happenstance or to idols or to the works of men, to people. And so Luke makes a preemptive strike against that sort of thinking in this verse. He basically says, okay, there was a wind that came. It was incredible. It was insane. It's unlike anything we've seen. Wow, it comes. It fills this room. And guess what? It came from heaven. It wasn't just mere nature. It wasn't something that could be explained away uh, very easily. And so he puts that in there sort of as a preemptive strike against those doubters and scoffers, which have always been uh, in our midst and have always been around throughout all of history. And when we get down to verse 13, we'll see some of those very mockers who attribute these things to something else. So he does that. He says, no, it, it, it came from heaven. It was a mighty Russian wind that came from heaven. Now, verse 3. And this is where it gets really uh, interesting, and not that it hasn't been, but anyways. Verse 3, and divided tongues, says, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, the divided tongues of fire uh, represent two, I'd say probably more, you know, a a Bible teacher's not going to uncover everything that God's word means at times, but I've localized and figured out two very important things that these divided tongues of fire represent here. Number one would be this. I would, say, I would call it the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the divided tongues of fire was God's way of covering his people, this 120 group, with the Holy Spirit. This is that permanent thing that God does at the moment of belief, or as I would believe, just before belief, because the scriptures make it very clear that natural man can't believe without the assistance and power and presence and Holy Spirit of God. And so this is that that divine miracle that God performs in the life of the new believer where he anoints and puts his spirit into this person. That's what this tongues uh, of divided tongues of fire represent here, that once and for all sort of uh, anointing, like being uh, not filled but being covered by the Holy Spirit. It, this is a different thing than what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the filling of the Holy Spirit can increase or decrease according to whatever it is that God desires to do, or maybe even according to our position with God and what we've welcomed into our lives as far as sin goes and all that, or if we've prayed and made sure that we're filled. So there's a difference between an anointing. That's a permanent thing here. It's like, God, okay, this person's saved. I put my Holy Spirit on this person. That's going to exist forever. And then there's the filling of the Spirit, which is different. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit in, in, a, in a moment. Now, some have tried to tie... Uh, Some scholars have had to try this particular passage or this phrase and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and and kind of came on each of them. Some have tried to tie it to Matthew 3.11 where John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus would baptize with fire because what we have taking place here is a form of baptism. It's this baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you will. But I find it to be very difficult to, to, to bridge this to 3.11 because in 3.11, John the Baptist is talking about judgment. 
He's not talking about a once and for all baptism anointing of the Holy Spirit on those of faith. He's talking about how Christ will purge the world through a baptism of fire. And so his language there is of judgment. It's not like this beautiful thing that happens. It's a horrific thing that happens to those that are outside of Christ. So I don't think that we can tie it uh, to that passage there. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. The context really doesn't allow it. The second thing that divided tongues of fire represent is this. And this is more or less what most people have viewed it to mean in, in the church and all that. And it is definitely the once and for all anointing, but it's this too. Uh, the second thing, an anointing of the ability to communicate the gospel in foreign language or foreign languages. This is, we have to be really careful here with this text though. This is not an empowerment to speak in what some refer to as angelic tongues. That's not what the context uh, allows. It does not allow for that form of, of, of understanding. I'm not refuting the theology or doctrine of angelic tongues or any of those things, but what I'm saying is this particular context will not allow it, and the reason is because verse 11 makes that very clear. Now, this has to do, this particular anointing of divided tongues, it has to do with being able to communicate the gospel intelligibly in other languages. Now, I would like to note that if you're wondering about what my position on tongues is, is that, you know, uh, and I don't know how relevant this is to all of it, I suppose, but some people might be wondering, do you believe that there's angelic tongues or that people speak in tongues or whatever? And, you know, I, I'm kind of, man, I, I see it in Scripture, but then I see it being used over here, and then, then I see TV, and I see it being what I would say would be abused. I mean, it's just so often and, and so frequent. And then, um, I don't know about you guys, but... Every time I've ever seen tongues used, I've never seen a translation. Never. I've never seen it like, okay, this is what the Holy Spirit said through this person. And so what does that mean for somebody like me? It means that I'm highly skeptical uh, over the use of it. And, and there's other people out there that take a really hard-line position. Somebody like John MacArthur says that it doesn't exist. It ended at the end of the apostolic era. It's not something that, that should be practiced today because it was for a particular time. And he goes on to say something incredible about it, and he says this. He says that it's only, um, there was no use of tongues in the church until the turn of the 20th century. And he says that any use of it that existed at all for almost 2,000 years was only found in heretical groups. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty hardcore statement. I think the guy's done a little bit of research. But the bottom line is, is that his position is, no, it doesn't exist. It's not being used any longer or whatever. I don't know if I go that far with it. But because I do see some things in Scripture that seem to indicate that there is some language there or something like that. My interpretation, though, every time I come across Scripture and I see the word tongues, it seems to always mean language. It seems to always mean some form of language, intelligible language something that people speak here now in this world. So that's kind of my position on it. So, you know, I, it, could, it could exist. You know, it, it could happen. But I think that, it, you know, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 28, it needs to be accompanied by a translation because Paul basically frames it. Okay, here's the bottom line. There's a, there's a parameter that tongues has to function within. If it goes outside of the biblical parameter, then it's not tongues. If it's inside of it, then there's a possibility that it is. 
And, and, and 1 Corinthians 14.28 says that it must be translated, it must be interpreted by somebody. So we need to know that, and, and uh, the reason why I stress this and I emphasize it is because people have taken this particular text and they have built an entire theology on the use of tongues in the church today based on this. And the bottom line is this, that's not at all what this particular text means. The context will not allow it. God is about to do something before many, many people from many, many different lands. It's imperative that they can hear the gospel in their language. We'll see all this come to light. So we, we're not going to be able to build a theology of, oh, we can all speak in tongues and be baptized in this and do this from this text. It's not happening. It doesn't allow it. And I don't mean to be offensive if you believe in those things. It's just the reality of what Scripture teaches here. Now let's look at four. We continue to move on. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, And they were all filled, here's that filling, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's a neat word, utterance. Now Luke goes on to note uh, that they were not only covered or anointed by the Holy Spirit, that permanent anointing, for a believer, but that they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that filling, the anointing is, is, is incredibly important, and that's something that happens with every believer. But the filling is, is very, very important, too, because it is the very thing that equipped and prepared these people to go out and do the ministry of the gospel, which we're going to see them begin to do uh, quite shortly here, and just as we kind of continue to move along. And there's a, there's a tremendous principle in this text for us here. And, and the bottom line is this. Before we engage in the ministry of the gospel, before we, bega- uh, before we go out and begin to share the truth with others uh, or go out and, and begin to do good works and back that with our proclamation of the gospel in our community, before we go to do any of that gospel ministry, we need to first seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what's happening in this text. These people are anointed once and for all, and then they're filled, and then we'll see them go out. It is so imperative that we glean from that principle and that we know that before we ever go out and engage in the ministry of the gospel, we need to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit before we go out and do it. And I believe if we were to do that, so many of the problems that are present in ministry today would disappear, literally. So many of the things would go away. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit as they engage in ministry are way, way less likely to argue their theological positions to the point of upsetting people. You hear me? You're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're way less likely to step out of there and begin to badger someone, argue against some theological position or some lack of truth with somebody. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is going to bring meekness, gentleness, peace, Those kinds of things. That's what the Spirit brings into our lives. What does the Scripture say? He brings a peace that, what, transcends all understanding. And so when we go out and begin to engage the ministry of the gospel, when we begin to debate others on Scripture or on their understanding or lack thereof, guess what? When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're less likely to beat Him over the head with the Bible and to create an argument. And let me tell you, I'm a very, I should have been an attorney. I am really good at arguing, and I don't like to lose. And there have been many times where I've stepped out not being filled and lit people up and done the exact reverse of what God intended to be done with some soul. That's just a reality. 
I mean, you know, we're going to be transparent and real at this church. I've got to tell you, I'm a buffoon at times when it comes to these things. It, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are less likely to argue their theological positions to the point of, of upsetting people, riling them up, picking them off. They're, they're less likely to ab- apply biblical truths to those that are outside of the faith in a way that isn't scriptural or gracious. When we go out and we're not filled with the Holy Spirit and we begin to do the ministry of the gospel, there are times where we come across people who don't know Jesus from Adam. I mean, they don't care about those things. And all of a sudden, we hold them to an expectation where they need to just obey God's truth. Do we not do that? Oh, I can't believe what you're doing. Look at you. You need to do this. And they have no comprehension of the things of God. None. No understanding whatsoever. And all of a sudden, we're uh, layering upon them expectations that God has placed upon us in His grace, and He wants obedience from us. We're layering them onto people who, who do not have the power to overcome the things that they're involved in. Uh, I remember so clearly when I first got saved, it was an incredible event. Because I went from just boozing and, and, and partying and, and, and just you know making a wreck of my life and making a wreck of my family. And then I got saved and I was so on fire, I was an absolute jerk to people. I mean, that's supposed to be an oxymoron. You're supposed to laugh at that. Like, you're so on fire for God and you were a jerk to people? No, you're not supposed to be a jerk, right? I went to a Christmas dinner with my family there and just, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. I just annihilated my sisters and everything, blew them out completely. I mean, I did not handle the things of God well whatsoever. And it, it's, it's been 10 years, and, you know, and still my sisters are like, oh, we don't like being around our brother because we know what to expect from him, you know, condemnation and guilt, and he's making us try to obey a book we don't even believe in. What's he doing? Well, that's not my position now. I've changed. You know, I, I handle the things of God differently now. But I tell you what, when I came out of the gate, it would have been very beneficial beneficial for the glory of God for me to have sought to be filled with the Holy Spirit at all times as I went out and did ministry. I just did not do that. I just showed up somewhere and started flapping my chops. And some of it was good flapping. And some of it was, oh my, it was like, you know, a samurai sword. People, you know, and just, I was just killing them with the gospel. And then I'd turn around and I'd go, that's what the gospel does. It destroys people. No, you're doing it, dummy. You're the one destroying them because you're not handling it right. You know, that's what I would do. So those who are filled with the Spirit are less likely to go out and, you know, just start layering and applying biblical truths on people who have no comprehension of what they are. That's not how you handle it. They're way less likely when you're filled with the Holy Spirit to act critically towards those who they serve with. You show up to serve in ministry and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the potential to be a total nitpicker. You can just pick away at people that you serve with. You can just light them up for their lack of doing things the way they should or lack of saying things the way they should. And I mean, you could show up to do the ministry of the gospel, beautiful thing, not filled, and you could show up being a total critic. Guilty. Done that. Showed up, looked at what everyone else does and said, that's not right. But I know what's right. Oh, you know, I mean, just... I mean, that's what happens when we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, because what? The Spirit brings peace. He brings humility. Whenever you show up, if you're not filled with humility, it's going to get ugly. You know, I mean, don't we see that? In the, isn't that characteristic of the lives of the disciples when Jesus was touring Palestine with them and they were fighting over who's the greatest? I'm the best disciple. 
I went to the transfiguration. You didn't. You just, you know, I mean, are you kidding me? That's the kind of stuff they did. I, I, I have to believe that they were believers to some degree, minus Judas. We see that. But these guys were not filled with the Holy Spirit most of the time because they did some insanely dumb things. Oh, I won't let you go to the cross, Jesus. I know Kung Fu. You know, get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter, you goofball. What are you thinking? Right? I mean, just stupid stuff. You're less likely to act critically towards others that you serve with. Uh, huge one right here. Those who engage the ministry of the gospel that are filled with the Holy Spirit are way less likely to walk in what? One of the most ugliest things in the church today, and that's self-righteousness. Man, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit and humbled by him and have that peace that he has and you show up, guess what you're filled with? Yourself. And when God gives us these beautiful things, his grace and salvation and, and transformation, and he gives us insight into his word and he gives us doctrine and he gives us theology and all that, boy, if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, that just makes us go, man, look what I know. You know, look, look what I've got. Look at all these things that God's done for me. And we walk around in self-righteousness and we point out everyone else's faults and failures. And, and boy, we never make mistakes because we're, you know, clean as a whistle, right? I, I bet you, you come across someone as you're engaged in the ministry and you see how they're corrective and all that, I bet you they just didn't spend time with the Lord that morning. It could be. I, I have to say I'm guilty there. I've, I've done that before. I've, I've, I've taken many a step in self-righteousness. Not, I'm not happy about it. Another big one, too. Uh, those who are filled with the Spirit are less likely to experience uh, ministry failure you know, or ineffective gospel ministry. You know, one of the greatest, greatest, and, and some of you might be thinking, well, how do we judge success in ministry? Well, I, I, if the name of Jesus is exalted and people are loving him and all that, I guess that's success. I don't know. You know, it's hard to gauge the things of God. But you can experience ministry failure. I've been in ministry long enough to, to, to have held a, an event or two and had it go, you know, and just, whoa, all because I wasn't filled. Now, one of, one of the greatest examples in Scripture of failed ministry due to a lack of being filled with the Holy Spirit took place when Jesus' disciples failed to cast an unclean spirit from a young man. This is an, an amazing passage over in Mark 9, 12 we see. Okay, these guys tried and tried and tried to cast this evil spirit out of a young man, this unclean spirit I think is what the text says, and they just, to no avail, they could not do the job. Three of them were up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So they were up there experiencing the glory of Christ. Unbelievable, incredible thing they're doing. All the rest of them are down below. They're not on the mountain. They're down below in the valley. And they're down there trying to cast an unclean spirit out of a kid. And it's a flaming train wreck. It is a terrible thing that's happening. Now, Jesus did come and... and, and I guess we would say that he saved the day, for lack of better words. He came and he healed the boy. And then later that night, the disciples asked Jesus why they failed. They said, what happened? That did not work. Okay? We tried everything, man. I did a backflip, a somersault, and, you know, shouted. And it, I mean, they just tried every conceivable thing. Nothing happened. So they go to Jesus and they ask, what happened? Why did we blow it? Why didn't it work out? And he said this to them in Mark 9:12 he said that kind of spirit can only come out through prayer. What did Jesus mean by that? Did he want them to pray more and that's what would have done the trick? No, that's not at all what it means. In fact, I've heard it taught that that's what it that's what it means. That's not at all what it means. 
These men were extremely prideful, just as we are. Okay, they often argued with one another about who the greatest disciple was. I just mentioned that. They did it several times in the gospel accounts where they were arguing, I'm the best. You ever seen the movie Spartacus? I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm. These guys were saying, no, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. They all thought they were the best. They boasted, they bragged, and guess what? They rubbed their God-given gifts and privileges in each other's faces. It was terrible. Bottom line, these guys were very much filled to the max, to the brim, with themselves. And when, a, when this father brought his possessed son to them for healing, their pride and self-centeredness was, it had reached maximum capacity. It was flowing out of them. It was overflowing. And when they tried to cast out that unclean spirit out of that guy's son, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit was so, uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in them was so minimal and weak within them that they couldn't do the job. In other words, they couldn't heal the boy because they were filled with themselves instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, who brings what? Power from on high. Now, Jesus knew this. He knew why they failed. And he told them that if they would have humbled themselves and prayed earnestly for God's help and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, they'd have had success. That's what it means. This kind can only come through prayer. What, we need to pray more? No, you need to just pray because you didn't pray at all. You went into that thing all by yourself as a solo artist with uh, nine other goofballs or eight other goofballs. You didn't pray. You didn't seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You didn't do any of those things. In fact, you were arguing about who's the greatest before you ever went to do it. Now, it's no mystery as to why you failed. It's no mystery as to why you couldn't do what I commanded that you go out and do. You were filled with yourselves. You were filled with yourselves. Now, Take just a quick look over the last five years, maybe even ten years of your life. Count the times that you failed in ministry. And you might be thinking, well, I haven't really, you know, it's been a while since I've served in a youth ministry. Or this. I, that, that's not, that, that's, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Your, your ministry of the gospel could just be a conversation that you had with somebody about the gospel. And maybe that conversation didn't go all that well. Maybe it got ugly. Maybe it just didn't turn out the way that you would have desired. And later, you, you look back and said, man, what happened? Why, why did I end up arguing those points with that person? Or why did I impress this upon them? Or why did I say those you know, dumb, unholy things around them? I acted just like they do. Why? why? It, it could be that simple. That could be your ministry right there. It could be that. You know, maybe you were sitting with somebody and you had a conversation and just, it just got stupid. I just have to tell you, I, I, you know, that, that's me so many times. I've done that. Or, or maybe, you know, you led some sort of an event for a church or for some organization or something and it just didn't go all that well. Or maybe some of you guys out here, you know, preach the word of God. I know Colby does and, you know, Cameron does. You know, may, maybe you... You preached a sermon that seemed to just kind of fall on deaf ears or, or maybe the room was just filled with lots and lots of distractions. Are, are there other forces at work when the word of God is preached? Are you kidding me? The demons, they mount up and they get their six shooters ready to go and they start shooting. But could it be that the reason why that conversation just did not go well, could it be that that event 
that, that you oversaw and planned? Could it be that the time you preached, could it be that the reason why it didn't go the way that you would have liked was because you weren't prepared? Because you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you didn't seek Christ before you engaged in that ministry and you didn't lay yourself before him and admit that uh, you basically have no potential, no ability, no strength, no wisdom, no knowledge, no great. You have none of those things apart from Christ and that you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can possess what he has for you. Could it be that that's why the ministry went awry? I, I don't have enough fingers and toes. I could take my shoes off. I won't, but I could, and I could start counting my fingers. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the amount of times that I've blown it in ministry because I wasn't filled. And I wonder if, if maybe that's what happened with you. And it could be as simple as a conversation with a neighbor that just, oh, man, it was beautiful. And then all of a sudden, they just started talking to me about how Buddhism's legitimate, and then I just... I pulled out the biblical howitzers on him, and it was awesome. <laughs> I remember a time a guy came to me, and he was boasting about the fact that he had been fired from his job because of the gospel, because of righteousness, because he held a tight line, and, and they fired him for it. I remember that, and, then I, and, and so I was very interested interested in what he was saying and so i began to say well well that, that's amazing you got fired for jesus sake that's woohoo that's a good thing right the apostles rejoiced when they got a beat down for jesus so hey you should rejoice in that and then he began to tell me why and i said well flush this out for me and he began to say well you know i work with guys and um, their mouths are horrible they're always cussing and they're always talking about this and that and it's terrible and you know i'm right there just to correct them and i just said go on <laughs> okay what else oh this one time my boss did this and man I just I just I just I, I peppered him with the word of God got anything else and he just kind of kept going down this list of all these things and all these experiences and all these instances where he was correcting or um, rebuking or admonishing whatever it is he, he just kept going through all this thing and, the, and, then I, and then by the time it was all said and done he had a big smile on his face he was happy about this and I said you, you lost your job because you were a jerk not because of the gospel because you didn't handle the things of God well that's why you lost the job what do you mean every time somebody did something wrong you corrected them you know you learned that from your wife <laughs> I mean, where did that come from? Every time someone did something wrong, yeah, I was right there. Really? And these guys, they go to church? No, 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 no. Are you kidding me? So you just corrected everything they did all the time. Yeah. You don't see a problem with that? You're, 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 you have an expectation for these men that they can't reach. And, 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 and instead of condemning, you, you ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit and encouraging and then modeling, your, you know, modeling Christ in your life. And, and, you know, it could just be that you were so different. Now you're not even there. Now you're not even there to be a witness because you were basically, you came across as being self-righteous and you blew it. And guess what? They didn't fire you because of the gospel. They fired you because they got tired of you because you were a jerk. Could it be that Christians should be the best workers at their place of work? Why? Because of what John Calvin would say, work is a holy place. It's a mission field. 
It's a place where we go and we're about the gospel. Shouldn't you be the hardest working guy there, the gentlest guy, the, the, the meekest, the nicest, the kindest, the most encouraging? Shouldn't you be there when Sally's mom dies and you're helping her and encouraging and praying? That's who you should be there, not the guy who's quick to pull out the chainsaw. And he was devastated. And, you know, he's never been the same. The guy's never been the same since the conversation we had. And I, I wasn't a jerk to him. I wasn't like this passion. I was just like, could it be? You know, I was more like, you know, at a, what do you call those on? You know, like a psychiatrist, you know, and I, could it be? You know, I, that's not me at all. I was, I was not, could it, I was on a leather couch, you know, and, could, and I had a pipe, you know, and could it be that, no, you know, you got an ascot on, no. No, I was like, could it, you know, but. But I think, I think that God spoke to him in that. And, and, that and, and, then, and then the guy has become a fantastic minister of the Word of God and, and, and is gracious and is kind and is gentle. You know, and, and it wasn't because of me. It was because of what God told him. But could it be that the reason why things just didn't go well was because we weren't filled, that we didn't seek to be filled, that we didn't fall on our face before God and say, I got nothing to offer today. I've got an event where 200 people are going to be here. I got nothing to offer. I, got, I, I know what I have to offer, and it ain't good. Could you rid me of that, Christ, and fill me with your Holy Spirit, please? It's going to take a miracle. The church of the upper room spent quite a bit of time in the presence of Jesus Christ through prayer. They were covered with the Holy Spirit, that, that, that one-time anointing, and, the, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were uh, uh, given the ability to speak the gospel in languages, they were filled, they were anointed, they had these things take place. And, and then it, it's, it's interesting, they began to, uh, at, the end of, at the end of that verse there, I believe, let me look up and see if it's there. They began to speak in these tongues before they went out and began to do the ministry. And I thought that's interesting, that you got a bunch of Galileans together, 120 of them in a room, and they're all speaking Italian, whatever it is, I don't know what the languages were, they were languages from all these other lands, but they began to speak them to one another. And it was almost like a practice session. Like, you know, all of a sudden they were speaking Aramaic and then they were speaking Russian or something. I mean, it was like almost like a practice thing. Like, okay, here's the anointing. And they began to do it as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is just before they begin to go out. And then they do begin to step out into Jerusalem, into the streets and, and over to the temple and stuff like that. It was like a testing or something that happens at the end of that, at the end of verse 4 there. They began to speak the, as the Spirit gave them utterances. And then we look at 5, and we're going to look at, uh, actually, we're going to go from 5 to 11. It's all kind of the same thing. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? And then he goes down through this little list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, all the way up from Rome. And, and, and then he says both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And then, and then they say this, it's amazing. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You know, in verse 5 to 7, Luke tells us that 
the little church of 120, this is how big the church was then, left the upper room and they went out into the streets and to the temple and they began to speak to foreigners, for lack of better words there, in their own languages. And then he wrote that there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven and that they were actually bewildered at the sound of the mighty rushing wind. So, okay, they, they weren't just blown away by the fact that they were hearing the mighty works of God in their own languages, but that they heard the blast of wind. They heard that sort of thing happen as well. Very, very interesting. And, and then, then they were also sort of bewildered by the fact that this was all happening through the mouths and actions of Galileans. Now, now Galilee was, <laughs> it was really kind of like the Central Valley in Israel. It was, you know, the farming community. I suppose is what we would call it in, in Israel. You know, and it was kind of that place where the good old boys kind of hung out and roped donkeys because, you know, they, rodeo was different then. <laughs> and, and, you know, and they kind of, I mean, like what we did here back in high school, you know, I used to hang around a bunch of cowboys and stuff. <laughs> they roped horses and all that, but we'd hang out on canal banks and party and hang out and just, you know, that was kind of the thing that people do around here. There weren't a whole lot of other things to do, and not that those things were good because they weren't, but this is, this is good old boy territory here. These are, the Galileans were the good old boys, man, 10-gallon hat, 10-gallon yarmulke, you know, a big disc. I don't know what they did, but this was good old boy country here. These were, these were, these were good, good old, good neighbors, you know, and just good old farming people, man, I guess would be the best way to describe them. Good old boys. Galilee wasn't known for its prestigious universities because it didn't have any. Uh, it wasn't known for education, and the reality is that most people there weren't educated. It, it wasn't known for its religion or piety, uh, you know, or its sophistication or for its incredible shopping. I mean, it just, it wasn't known for any of those things because it was country. It was farmland, and it's very plush and beautiful there. Gorgeous rolling hills with with, you know, all of the agriculture, but it just, it wasn't known for all these, you know, you, you go down into Judea, and you get into Jerusalem and stuff, that's where the religious headquarters was, and all the fast-paced hustle and bustle and things, and down in Idiomia and stuff, and then up north, where there were more uh, Roman provinces, that's where it was hustle and bustle, you go to Caesarea Philippi, those places, Capernaum, those places where the Romans had developed and, and built, um, uh, fortresses and those things, I mean, that's where it was hustle and bustle. That's where it was San Francisco, Seattle, those kind of metropolises. But, man, we're talking Galileans from Galilee, fishermen, farmers, good old boys. And yet they are speaking <laughs> in the native languages of people from all over the world. What a, what a miracle this is. The, 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 the people are, are watching them and listening to them, and they're blown away. This is why it says, are they not Galileans? Because they knew that Galileans just didn't possess education or any of those things, and yet here they are doing these incredible things. They say, are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? How are they doing this? They were astonished. Wouldn't we be if we were taking a tour in Italy and got off our tour bus and we're in a town and all of a sudden that 120 people from a farming community and I would say a less than desirable farming community came over and began to address us in our native tongue in the middle of Italy. 
we'd be like, what? Who set this up? You know? What's going on here? And then what if other members on the tour with us got off and they were German and uh, French and Polish and they all got off with us and we didn't know what they were saying, but all of a sudden these same people start speaking to them in their own languages. Would we not go, what? Really? I mean, that's kind of what's playing out minus the tour bus minus Italy. There's multitudes of people here. And all of a sudden, this group of 120 are out speaking all the, the, the languages that they speak, and they were from all over the world. This would have been a bizarre thing. This is incredible what's playing out here. They were astonished. Luke includes a list of, of the different people, groups that were present during this moment. He listed 13 different regions, the Parthians, all these different regions, 13 different regions that people had come from. And, and in, that, in that, those 13 different regions, there were Jews and Jewish converts. They call them proselytes in the text. And then there were Gentiles, Romans and others, that just weren't Jewish. Now, why were all these people gathered in Jerusalem at this time? They were gathered for a major festival that took place each year called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. The text that Paul read from Leviticus is the mandate to have that feast is where that comes from, that Leviticus passage. I think it was the 16, 1 to 12 that you read. That's why he read that. These people were all in Jerusalem at the temple there worshiping God, making their offerings, doing these things because there was a massive, massive festival feast playing out called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It was held 15 days after Passover, roughly right at the point of Jesus' resurrection. The Feast of Weeks is significant for several reasons. It marks the end of the grain harvest or grain season and some of you out here are farmers. John, you kind of know what that means. But it marks the end of it. Uh, and their harvest for grain, for wheat, uh, was roughly about seven weeks. We see that in Exodus 23, 16. So they had a festival at the end of the harvest as a celebration of all that God had provided. That's why it was established. Number two, and here's a huge thing. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, or Feast of Pentecost, com uh, commemorates the anniversary of the day God gave the Torah to the entire Israelite nation assembled at Mount Sinai. Man, that, that feast represents, it's like it commemorates the time that God gave them the law. Exodus 34, 22 to 23. Now, another thing that's significant is this particular feast and celebration was one of three that required uh, that the religious Jews... Uh, those who were Orthodox, those who believed in God, those who were worshipers, it required that they be at the holy city for the event. There were three, as I said, three yearly events that required a pilgrimage to the temple. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was one, which took place the day after Passover. This is why so many people were present for Passover, because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, another massive feast. And then we have the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. All three of those required a pilgrimage to the city if you were a true Jew. And so that explains why there were so many people present in the city from all over the world. All of these Jews or Jewish converts came, came to this place because they were required to, because they were Orthodox Jews. They had to do it. They had to make the trip. We see in the Gospels several times where Jesus makes the trip. As a young boy, he comes and makes the trip with his family, and his parents offer two turtle doves because they were poor. We see him coming back with the disciples to these feasts and stuff. And so that's why there's 
these people are there and gathered, and there's, there's just tons of them from all over the world. Now, why did God choose to use this particular event to pour out his spirit and to begin the church age? I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons. Divine providence is probably the most important. I mean, that's just the way God does it. God didn't look at this event and say, this would be a great event that I could capitalize on to do something special. God had foreordained to use it for this purpose. But what might be some reasons behind him using this particular one with all these people there? Might I suggest that um, whenever God seeks to display his glory by initiating major change in the world, that he goes really, really big and pulls out all the stops when he does it? Uh, the scriptures testify to this over and over and over. You know, the population in Jerusalem swelled into the hundreds of thousands, even into the millions during these great feasts, which made this the opportune time for God to display his glory through initiating worldwide change through the implementation and initiation of the Christian church. I mean, this, this is a moment where so many people are gathered and God had foreordained to use it for his glory to initially birth the church. And, you know, whether you're a believer of Christ or not, you can't deny the effects that Christ has had on our world or the effects that the church has had on the world. I mean, we have education, public education. It came through the church, folks. We have hospitals. They came through the church. The church began those institutions and so much more. But I would say that when God aims to glorify himself, when he seeks to glorify himself by initiating some form of change in the world, and the Christian church brought change, he goes big, man. He, he utilizes something like this to magnify himself and to begin something really big. We see so many examples of when he did this throughout Scripture with different instances. When God hit the reset button on humanity in Genesis 6 and 7, he didn't do it by springing a leak in a garden hose and then letting that slowly flood the world. He cracked open the skies. He cracked open the ground, and water came forth with such force that mountains and valleys and bodies of water were formed. I mean, he magnified his glory when he judged this world the first time around and created change. He initiated change. The world has never been the same since the flood. The climate's different. The, the geography's different. There's so much that's different. But he didn't just pop a little hole in a hose and say, okay, flood. No, he brought it with absolute devastation to all that existed except for those that were on a boat. Now, he, when he seeks to display his glory by initiating major change in the world, he goes big. We see it with the flood. When God shifted humanity from one city to the ends of the earth, he didn't gently coach the earth's inhabitants like a travel agent to go out and check out exotic places. No, he turned their idolatrous tower of Babel into a pile of rubble and he confused their languages so that they would leave. You see? He does something big. He's initiating change. He's taking people to the ends of the earth. He doesn't say, okay, uh, Hawaii's beautiful. Go check it out. No, he shatters their idolatrous tower and brings it into rubble. And then he frustrates their language. So now none of them can understand each other. Who's Nazdovich? Who's Nizdovich? You know, and then they just leave. They don't know what to do. He goes big. He went big with Babel. And they walked away babbling. When God... <laughs> 
stupid. When, I am. When God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he didn't do it via persuasive speech or through clever arguments. Please let them go. Well, let me tell you why you need to do it. Let me give you a philosophy on why you did it. No, 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 no. No, that's not what he did. Yeah, he, in his grace, afforded opportunity and all that, but they rejected it. No, what did he do when he brought his people out of there? He unleashed ten plagues upon Egypt that wreaked absolute havoc on the land and demeaned the Egyptians' false gods. He even parted a body of water that the Bible calls a sea. You see, when God seeks to display his glory by initiating major change in the world, he what? He goes big. When God put his son on a cross for sinners, he didn't do it in someone's backyard in a cul-de-sac in some remote town like Barstow. You ever been there? There's nothing, and all of a sudden, whoa, there's Barstow. Whoa, there goes Barstow. I just flew by Barstow. He didn't do it in some remote location like, like Barstow or something like that. No, 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 no. He put him on a cross at the top of a hill in a major city on a major travel route during the most popular festival of the year, the Passover, where approximately two and a half million people were gathered. When God seeks to display his glory by initiating major change in the world, and Jesus brought major change to the world, when God seeks to bring glory to himself by bringing that change, he goes big. The cross was there for all to see. And, and why is it that we've been saved by Christ and, and he's not there for all to see through our own lives? That we're not putting him on display. God put him on magnificent display was fine with doing that, crushing his son before multitudes at the top of a hill that looked like a skull. For all to see and for all to mock and for all to criticize and for all to curse at and for all to spit on. That's what he did. Not all. There was a little remnant of people that were faithful there. When God sends his son back to establish his earthly throne, he won't do it covertly like SEAL Team 6. It's not going to be a surgery strike. No, the Bible says in Matthew 24, 29 to 31, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened while no light, and the moon will not give its light either at night, and the stars will fall from heaven. Wow, it looks like God's setting something up here. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This isn't a ninja mission. Everyone will know. And change will come at that moment. Christ will establish his kingdom. And the saints will be there to rule and reign with him for a thousand years and then beyond that forever. As I said before, when God seeks to display his glory by initiating major change in the world, he what? He goes big. He does big things. He gets people's attention. It is the same with what's playing out in our text. 
There are so many people present from all over the world. And then he fills his church with the Holy Spirit. And they go out and they begin to speak in foreign tongues the incredible things that he's done and that he's doing. It says in 12, And all were amazed, and yet they were perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Those that were present were amazed and perplexed, and they began to speculate about the meaning of it all. Man, something's got to be going on here. God's got to be up to something. Something's happening here. This is incredible. Back in verse 11, he recorded that some of the witnesses talked about how the upper room Christians testified to the mighty works of God. That's what they were hearing, the mighty works of God, which would have no doubt been the cross, which would have no doubt been the death, the burial, and no doubt been the resurrection, and no doubt been the ascension of Christ. That's what these 120 people were witnesses to. That's what they were proclaiming in foreign tongues, in foreign languages. If you've ever wondered how to share the gospel with others, there it is. You simply testify to the mighty works of God. Tell them about the mighty things he's done in your life and in your family and at your church. Tell them about the things that God did in the Old Testament and how those things point to Jesus. Tell them about the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of your Messiah. Tell them how they can be saved through repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how we evangelize. That's how we witness. We do what they did. But that's not what everyone did. Look at 13. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. As it was with the Pharisees who heard Jesus' claims and saw the confirming miracles, some present there rejected the evidence that God had brought forth through these upper room Christians. They went, even went as far, these Pharisee-like people, these mockers and scoffers, they even went as far as to claim that they had to have been on new wine, buzzed, drunk. One commentator said they tried to explain away the miracle of speaking in tongues as a drunken frolic. And why is this? Why did the mockers and scoffers do that? Well, it's very simple. 1 Corinthians one twenty three makes it clear. It says that Christ crucified, a.k.a. the gospel, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. There are just some people out there that don't have ears to hear, eyes to see, or hearts to receive. They mock, they make fun of, they criticize. Some of you they do that to because you love Christ. And it's not because you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit and didn't represent things well. You did well, and guess what? You're going to get, yeah, but you, you, you do it wrong, you're going to get heat. You do it right, you're probably going to get more heat. Gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. Bottom line. And, and, and yeah, revival is about to break out in downtown Jerusalem, but guess what? Every time revival breaks out, False revival breaks out too. There's a whole lot of people that begin to profess Christ and who yet do not believe or show the fruits of the Spirit. 
And right out of the gate, we have some there that are mesmerized, blown away, perplexed. Incredible this is happening. And we have others on the other side that, look, they're all sauced. They were at Donaby's earlier this morning. That's what's going on. They had too many schooners. Oh, that guy drank a Long Island. They were blaming the works of God on alcohol is what they were doing. And tragically, some in the church today believe that there is such a thing called to be drunk in the Spirit. And they get it from this text, that you could be so filled with the Spirit that you're going to act drunk. Uh, this, this was an attack by the enemy towards these Christians to call them drunk. It wasn't a good thing. And they most certainly weren't walking around and stumbling and acting drunk. They were just doing something miraculous via the Holy Spirit. And the people were unwilling to accept it. And it's impossible to build a theology on some idea that we can be so filled with the Spirit that we'll act drunk on this text. The context will not allow it. And I don't think the Scripture would do anywhere. It's amazing to me that people act like that. What is he doing? He's drunk in the Spirit. Just like they were in that passage. Really? That's not how they were acting. They weren't acting drunk. They were doing something miraculous that they didn't have the ability to do. For crying out loud, they were Galileans. They could barely speak their own language. Wow. And ultimately, the events of Pentecost didn't line up with Orthodox Judaism. And that's why the mockers mocked. Orthodox Judaism is essentially a system of works righteousness where people earn their way with God and earn their salvation. They earn their standing with God. That's ultimately what it is. If you do X and you do Y, that equals Z and you're good. And so when these people are there proclaiming the things that God has done while filled with the Holy Spirit in foreign tongues, the cross, the death, burial, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're proclaiming these things. That is a direct assault on Orthodox Judaism because what you're telling me is that Christ did the work? It's all done in him? No, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't work with me. You're drunk. You need to go over there. You've, you've taken something. Something's wrong with you. I can't do that because I know that I've got to obey all these laws and do all these rules and I've got to make myself clean as snow and I've got to do all the things. I've got to prepare myself before God and then, and then someday when I get up in heaven, God will pull out the scale and he'll look at the good and he'll look at the bad and the good will slightly outweigh the bad and then he'll let me in. That's the religion of America, friends. Everyone's an Orthodox Jew. Everyone's a proselyte to that system. But that's the system of this world, not just Orthodox Judaism. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they're all the same. It's all the same stuff. Earn, 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 earn. Make yourself right, make yourself right, make yourself right. And God will bless you. God will change you. God will welcome you into his kingdom through those pearly gates and you'll be able to sit on a cloud and pluck a harp that's the religion of this world friends this is why they rejected it this is why they said they're drunk the bible makes it clear that the greatest deeds of fallen men are nothing more than filthy rags before the perfect holy god the Bible teaches that under no circumstances whatsoever do we possess the kind of righteousness that is required of God. It teaches that the required righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ because he's the only one that ever lived a perfectly righteous life. He's the only one that ever fulfilled the law perfectly without breaching one jot or tittle of it. 
The Bible teaches that because of what Jesus did through his perfect living, through his blood-soaked sacrifice, through his burial, and through his miraculous resurrection, that God made a way for sinners like you and I to be made righteous before him. That God made a way for sinners like you and I to be cleansed and saved. The Bible goes on to say that if you turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. It doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. It just means that you'll never look at sin the same way again. That you will grow to despise it because you understand what an offense it is to your holy Father in heaven and how devastating and destructive it is to your own life and to those around you and to your community. For crying out loud, we just saw an unbelievable display of it with this guy who shot people the other day. Sin is repulsive. And so you're never going to just, okay, I don't sin anymore. No, 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 no. You'll never look at it the same. Some have said that being in the faith is like being in a battle against sin. That's exactly what it is. You're not without sin, but you're at war with it the rest of your life. It'll be a battle until you pass on to glory where you won't have to deal with it anymore. Where it's fully absolved and removed through Christ's work. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is a battle against the self and its lusts and its perversions and it's sin. It isn't easy at times. There's no doubt. It's never easy. And sometimes we fail. Sometimes we just, we don't cross the finish line on a day, right? Sometimes we blow it. We say something we should have said or we did something that we shouldn't have done. But guess what? In Christ we have grace. Mighty grace. grace of God is there for us. And you must know this. It is better to battle against sin for a short time in this life than to be in opposition against God forever. Because you will not win. Eventually, your you will actually win your battle against sin through Jesus Christ, through glorification. But no one wins against the mighty God. In comparison, we are a trillion times smaller than a gnat before him. And he can sling a person into the abyss with the batting of one eye. And yet some people think that they'll prevail against him. There's no doubt that these mockers in our text did. There's people here that I don't know. And I'm glad you're here. But I want to ask you, I want to beseech you this morning to make peace with your Creator if you have yet to do that. Throw yourself before His mercy seat and tell Him that you want to be saved by His Son. Pledge yourself to the one with nail-scarred hands who took your sins upon His body at Calvary. Please, don't waste another moment. The ear of the Lord is ever open to those who cry out for mercy and grace. And the arm of the Lord is not too short to rescue repentant sinners 
from impending doom. You don't have to leave this place as a mocker, an enemy of God. You can leave as a son or daughter of the Most High God and as a member of His blessed church forever. You can do that. Receive what He has for you, my friend. Lay yourself before Him. Fall prostrate before a holy God. Admit your sin and receive His Son as your Savior.